Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 179th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that knows when to hold them and when to hogag them. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host, as always this week, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin. And we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, James. Uh, how are you doing tonight? Very good, sir. Very good. Getting excited about our uh, Kingdom Death date <laughs> in a couple of weeks. I will, uh, yeah, I'm gonna, we're going to do our best for that one. Uh, looking forward to giving that a shot. Uh, can I tell you, I am drinking a, uh, a beer here. From Hawaii with Love out of Mortalis Brewing, but it is a golden stout, and I love stouts. Stouts are my beer, and I have never seen one of these before, but I've heard of two in the last week, so they really must be springing up. It's it's a, I don't know exactly where the stout comes from, but it was pretty good. (laughs) Pretty good. I think it drinks more like a double IPA. Interesting. We're heading up to a cottage up north here this weekend, so I'm going to have to stock up on some good beer. Oh, yeah. You come into America all the time. You should really make it, if you drink beer at all, you should make it a point to try and stop by an American craft brewery store and ask the store for some suggestions, Um, because I think you'll be very surprised at what's floating around down here. I should hit up you and Jason for some, uh, some good ideas and see what I can pick off while I'm on the road. I'm always... Very rarely not in the mood to pick up exclusives of one kind right. or another. Well, you know what? If we end up in Ohio, I'll toss a couple things in my bag. Uh, yes. And we idea. can try them. But, you know, I, I don't question whatsoever that, you know, Germany and Belgium and Canada sort of ruled the beer scene even 15 years ago, 20 years ago. But the American craft brewery scene has just been phenomenal. And it won't be forever, but damn, are they the best right now? Nice. Speaking of good deals out of Germany, the uh, Russian Modern Horizons uh, certainly paying off faster even than I thought it would. I managed to sell about a thousand bucks worth of Modern Horizon singles this week, which means I sent out about four packs. Oh, don't tell me that I have to open my boxes. <laughs> the sooner, an argument can be made that, like I sent you a note last week, something to the extent of. You know, market on these right now is about 300 sealed on eBay if people are ordering them, mostly from Russia, uh, sometimes the Ukraine. And if you hold them for a year, maybe you're going to get 400, maybe 450-ish would be my guess. But that's about equivalent to the average singles value that I'm pulling out of, that I pulled out of boxes and that most of the rest of the pro traders pulled out of boxes. Um, I haven't seen anybody who opened quantity get rooked. Let's put it this way. It's one of the harder... Uh, sealed products to get hurt on in quantity because it te- even if you have a bad box, it tends to even out when you pull one of those foil Russian mythics that sell for two hundred to eight hundred dollars. So you start with one box. If you open a money card, you finish the box and then open no more. And then if you miss, you keep going. Yeah, I mean you can. It's a, that's a solid approach. I mean, if you open a box and it's got, you know, you could make it a rule to. Sell enough to cover the box before you open the next one, and you probably do just fine. Um, stuff I've sold so far, I sold three Russian Hoga, uh, sorry, three Russian Renin Six for over three hundred dollars total. 
Um, sold a bunch of foil Russian bear tokens. Uh, sold a foil Russian seasoned pyromancer. And a couple of the other key Russian foil rares, I think, that I pulled. Um, really hasn't been that tough. The, the market is certainly much smaller than with English, but the demand is out there, especially since like U.S. distributors didn't get any of this product. Like, there's, there's no boxes for sale on eBay that are from anybody in the U.S. Yeah, I did notice that. And I was tempted to put mine up there, but I don't really want to sell them. You know, the, the Russian boxes up there are from... Uh, was it Ukraine or the whatever? Uh, and there's a hefty shipping charge on it, but you're still only paying like three twenty or something like that after shipping three thirty maybe. Um, yep. Which is, I mean, if you're in America, it doesn't seem like the worst rate to be paying. Yeah, so it's accessible. I think enough. I've got about, I've got about another thousand to sell, which I would guess will take less than a month, and then set up for a complete rebuy. With with ninety percent of the value still sitting in a box waiting to get sold. I mean, it's possible that I, I'm supposed to crack all mine and try and sell them and look to flip. But like the number of minutes that it takes to do all of this isn't insignificant either. Uh, no, nope. no, not at all. I, I've actually got some numbers on that. Twelve cases of Modern Horizons, regardless of which language they are, it's going to take you something like six hours to process, even if you know what. Yeah. Um, you got to crack them. You got to put stuff aside. You got to sleeve up the expensive stuff. You got to then you got to do a whole whack of sorting. And the way I've sorted it is uh, stuff that's definite hold versus stuff that I think is close enough to its peak to sell. So I'm like, I would be willing to sell almost any foil Russian rare or foil Russian mythic because though they have upside long term, a lot of them were priced pretty high right out of the gate. And there's not very much market data. So you kind of get to set the price on some of that stuff. Like you might be the only seller if you randomly open a foil russian force negation or something it might be one of only two people on ebay that has it um whereas stuff like ice fang coatl or goblin engineer i rate those cards a hold because they're nowhere near their peak so you could sell them and, and flip into more boxes if you wanted to but i think that you're probably best served kind of dividing the cards you get out of any language of the box um between stuff you want to play with stuff you're going to hold and stuff that's good to go right now mm-hmm. i mean stuff like Force Negation and Urza, those are already pretty high. Seasoned Pyromancer, I mean, even you can make an argument that Hex Drinker is probably higher than it's going to be long term. Could easily not find a permanent home in Modern and, and retrace even further. Uh, Renin Six, of course, I think is an automatic sell. I mean, it's put put. We're going to see it on our list here shortly, pushing from eighty to hundred this week. But there's still copies floating in and around seventy to eighty, and at the current pricing, people are going people that crack those in boxes are going to keep push pushing them into the market because unless you're playing Jund specifically in modern you don't even need the card so you think that renin six is not slated to crest uh to hit you know 250 dollars by the end of next year i think that if renin six has 50 percent roi to give in a year russian boxes are closer to 300 percent so you think that, and, and even if you, and even if you think I'm, if you, even if you think that's ridiculous, and you think it's only 100, percent it's definitely at least 100. percent So you think Russian boxes outpace Renin Six regardless? Yes, because Renin Six is Renin Six and Force Negation are already declared um, best rare, best mythic in the set at present, and so their price reflects that. Okay. 
fair. I guess I guess it's fair that if you th- that you think they're going to outpace the box, I suppose, which doesn't seem fair. I tweeted earlier that I think Run and Six will be over will be one hundred fifty dollars by the end of next year, and then uh, a couple people were thought that was so such a simple call as to be insulting. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's that's possible. I mean, I think that it's really hard for hundred dollar cards to get to one hundred and fifty. Um, unless the market drains to the extent that none can be found. Um, you're going to open a Red and Six once in every three boxes of Modern Horizons that get o- gets opened on average. Um, so it's not easy for people to go chasing them, but if it gets high enough, they will, just because people like lottery tickets. I mean, they're, they're much more plentiful than Masterpieces ever were. And yet, you know, so and people were cracking packs looking for those. So Modern Horizons is not at a print. Waves can appear, and may, and probably will. Not as big as people ever thought they would, but they'll, they, there will be product in the system for another six to nine months on a declining scale. And I'm happy. Like I think I probably could have got 150 for the Russian run in sixes in six months, maybe. But why wait? I can sell those three right now, get 310 to put towards more Russian boxes, and just rebuy at a lower uh, cost. By maybe, I mean, it depends how you look at it, but probably even, I already had a great price last time. This time might be even 40% cheaper based on the rebuy. So, and then I'm going to open some more Renin Sixes. You know, in, in 12 boxes, I'm probably going to get four of them. And then by that point, if they're 125 on, you know, competitive market, then that's another 500 to go into another rebuy and another rebuy until the Russian product just dries up. Yeah. And, it, and, and that, what that ends up usually meaning is that, you know, you're going to sell your foil rares, your foil mythics, your good mythics, some of your good rares, you're going to get your rebuy, and then you're going to be holding 10, 15, 20 copies, if you've opened, say, 12 to 24 boxes, of every rare in the set. And that's a lot of good rares. All five of the canopy lands, maybe you didn't sell all of your course negations, and then all of that 5 to $10 stuff. So, Dead of Winter, uh, On Thin Ice... And then that goblin engineer and giver of runes and et cetera. And that puts you in position to have play sets of them, which is, which is a good And the Russian play sets are much easier to sell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Selling a Russian single only works if the market tends to be holding multiple copies. Otherwise, you know, for instance, let me give you a great example and then we'll cap this. The guy that bought my three Russian red and six, here's a thing you should always do when somebody buys something relatively rare like that from you at a high price tag. Ask them if there's anything else they're looking yeah. for. Sure enough, that guy says, yeah, I'm missing fiery eyelets, sun-baked canyons, giver of runes, hex drinkers, get me get me prices on all of that. And we didn't close the deal on everything because we couldn't agree on prices. Some of that stuff I didn't think had peaked, so I didn't want to undercut. But I will be selling the guy another couple hundred dollars for the cards. And, you know, there you go. You're... You can put together package deals for people with multiple playsets so that they're rush you know, if they're building a Russian modern collection or they just want their Jun deck to be Russian top to bottom, you can help them get there. That's, I, I like the angle of reaching out and saying, Hey, I saw you're you're interested in this. We can also interest you in X, Y, and Z. Um, because they might have typed in that they were looking for one like, you know, you might not have listed your fire islets in Russian because you're just like, eh whatever but when this guy is like yeah i will also take those type of thing it's like well i didn't really want to go through all the work of listing these and blah 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 but like hey if he just wants to pitch 
you know, if I just sell all of this as a group right now, I'll take a couple bucks less on them in order to dump it all at once. And the thing is, because the Pro Trader network is like 50 people that opened a bunch of Russian MH1, and we probably c- collectively have the majority of it in North America right now, the reality is that, say you've got three of the four, somebody else in the group will have the other one. Like, you can you can loop somebody else in to complete the yeah. playset and get it out the door. Yeah, that's true, too. Have you found that you're competing with, uh, or that there's a lot of other pro traders in the market space right now with that stuff? I think it would be more, I think there, it's likely to hit a peak a little further out. People have mostly been just cracking their boxes lately. Like people haven't been really posting a lot of stuff, but we have a sales reporting channel on our discord where people uh, report what they've sold. And those reports are rolling in combination of Facebook, Twitter, eBay, TCG, um, I find on eBay, you're mostly competing against the Russian guys. So if people have the filter on that, they want to only look at domestic sales, you tend to do very mm. well. Okay. I gotcha. On TCG, I couldn't tell you because I don't sell on there. Uh, yeah, I actually, you know, I should make a point of going and checking TCG player Russian prices to see what the stock looks like. Because maybe not everyone's doing that. Because we do have a lot of people that are international. And they might not be on TCG player. And I, I would make the argument that one of the reasons that foreign does... Some of the people that think foreign doesn't move are maybe the people that are TCG centric. And I think that the reason that that bias exists on that platform is because the platform requires people to fiddle with advanced filters to look at foreign cards. And you can't type in Russian Fiery Islet into TCG Player and get a result. Whereas eBay works completely on semantic search. So somebody can type in Russian MTG, look at the latest postings. They can type in Russian Fiery Islet, get a result immediately click buy it now, sort by lowest price and away they go. You know, the flip side of that, I wonder is who is randomly, who is interested enough in Russian modern horizons that they don't know how to, but they don't know how to use CCG player. <laughs> like, I get what you're saying that, that eBay functions as a semantic search, but that's like, that's good well, for if you're selling like, you know, something you're trying to sell to people's ants, not what? niche magic cards. Well, I can answer that question because you're talking about me. I mean, I don't sell on TCG, but I certainly use TCG. I buy from there all the time. And if I'm looking up Russian prices, I'm always looking it up on eBay first because I know it's faster. Way faster. It's going to save me 10 seconds. Because I just go Russian MTG and it auto-completes. Whereas TCG doesn't... I mean, my core point is this. TCG needs to add semantic search (laughs) to their search system. It would make a big difference. Yeah, but if you're going to actually buy one of these cards... You're not. You're telling me you don't bother to check TCG before you pull the trigger on an eBay sale. Uh, it it would depend what I'm looking at. For Russian, I've I've trained myself to not bother because a lot of the stuff is just isn't there. Um, the the Russian guys aren't can't be on TCG right because they can't sell there. Yeah. So most of the and most of the Russian cards come from Russia or Ukraine, um, or Slovakia or whatever. And so those get, people are mostly on eBay because it's an international platform. So what are you paying for a Russian Renin Six on eBay right now? Uh, well, I sold mine just over a hundred. It was like 103 a piece or something. Yeah. Um, and I think probably lowest listed price would be something like 150. Okay. And I just asked, cause I pulled it up on TCG player just to see what was floating around out there. It looks like 120 is the low price mm-hmm. on TCG, but there's only like four vendors. Yeah. And there's such a smattering of this inventory that is really going to vary. Yeah. Urza is 75 bucks, but there's one at 75, two at hundred. And there's only four copies, uh, six copies total. And I would happily sell my Urzas for 50 to 55. So that tells you like the kind of variance that's going to exist in that 
you know, low data point marketplace. Yeah. Now then again, the market price is 38. Although I think that is that for Russian only. Let me see. Does that update if I uncheck that? No, that appears to be okay. So that's only English. Yeah, it's just checking the whole market data. So it doesn't really tell you what the Russian does. I have to go into the TCG player seller dashboard, um, which I guess I can do. Uh, but let me finish my intro since we haven't gotten that far yet. Uh, I'm glad to be here and I'm looking forward to sharing some value information with all of you. Our show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Go figure. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool and nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. So, what about this week? What shall we do? All right. So, this week, I thought we'd change things up a bit. Segment one, we're going to do our top movers, cards that have moved the most in price this week. A bold move. Segment two, big swing here, cards to watch, cards James and I like for the future. Segment three, this is where things get real wild. A metagame we can review, and we're basically just going really, to... But, but like a really good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're, and we're mostly just going to talk about Hogak. And segment four, our topic of the week, we have the judge program transition, which now now that I'm re- re- like thinking about this and like we're sitting down to record it, we should have gotten Dan Fournier on for this. And uh, the you know the judge program transition and the future of the Pro Tour, um, which, you know, that second bullet point might be a bit of a rehash of where we've been before, but we'll see where we are on time. Um, let's get started here. Segment one, our top movers. First card of the week, Speak of the Devil, Ren and Six out of Modern Horizons on foils 80 to 100 for about a quarter pickup. Uh, but this is definitely looking to be making a heavy impact in Modern. And I suspect that its impact so far has been uh, medium in Modern. And I think once Hogak kicks the axe, which is pretty likely at this point, I think Ren and Six is going to become a much bigger part of the format. I think you're seeing a lot of Modern Horizons cards are like kind of in the format, but Hogak is just doing such a good job as a deck of like kind of suppressing everything else that once that whole archetype gets tossed out the window, that you're going to see all this stuff move up. Um, you're going to see, is it Phoenix get better? Um, or at least kind of like reassert itself as the best deck in the format. Tron's going to get better. Um, and then Ren and Six decks are going to have a little bit more room to breathe. I think the real pushing point for Renin Six is if it starts showing up in a tier two list that people are that is fun to play that is competitive at the LGS level more than it is at, in top eight circles. Which it might already be. We just don't have that data at the moment. Yeah, I mean, if we look at the MTGO list this week, there are some pretty interesting stuff, and there was a really cool. Uh, well, I'll get to that later. There's a cool. Renin six deck that we can talk about when we get to segment three. Okay, well, and just to, just as a uh, to cap our earlier conversation, no Russian copies of Urza have sold yet on TCG Player. Good to know. All right, next card is Sign of Una, out of Modern Masters, non foils four fifty to six fifty for about a forty to fifty percent gain. This is on the back of Fairy Hype. Um, everyone's excited about fairies in Throne of Aldrain. I think the non foils, if they haven't poked already, will be very shortly. Um, maybe the new price just hasn't established itself yet, but I think we're probably going to be talking about fairies a lot over the next three months. We'll see what Throne of Eldraine coughs up for sure. 
Um, next on the list, we have the aforementioned Hogak Arisen Necropolis went through a spike over the weekend as it became apparent that it was dominating the Pro Tour despite the ban of Bridge from Below. A couple of different versions of the list showed up at Pro Tour. We'll talk about how well they did in segment three. Um, we saw that spike go from about five to eight. I, I sold copies close to in between $35 and $40 a set and got out clean on Hogak this weekend. Was very happy to exit on a bunch of English copies. I'm done with those. Got out of all my English foils uh, in at 11, out at 25. Um, got rid of both of my Russian foil Hogaks that I opened in my uh, Modern Horizons Russian cases. And only left holding a handful of Russian non-foils, which I might get stuff with. We'll see. Now, it's kind of funny to hear you say that because you feel like you got... You didn't sell fast enough before bridge yep, gets banned. Definitely. I, def- I definitely, I definitely missed the first yeah. peak because of my whole thing where a lot of my inventory goes to my place in Ohio and I only pick it up every four to six weeks. Now I think you sold too early. I do think Hogox getting tossed, but I think you've got five or six weeks before we get there. And I think you can probably wait two to three weeks and catch it a little higher. Not that the extra $2 really matters, but I wouldn't be surprised to see Hogak hit 15 again before it goes. And if it doesn't, I think the only reason it would it won't hit 15 is because people are afraid it's going to get axed. Um, I think anybody who doesn't think it's getting axed is dreaming. And I think that most of the sales on the weekend were people getting out ahead on hype before the commentary started rolling in that a ban was incoming. And then I, but I did sell a set this morning and my theory on the ones that are selling this week is that people are buying them to spike local tournaments because the deck is doing so well, as we're going to see across, even though it only put one copy in the top eight of the mythic championship, it's doing very well pretty much everywhere else. And, uh, you know, somebody that's already a top eight competitor, on a regular basis at their LGS is probably going to look to be on Hogak or something that answers Hogak very strongly. And so copies will sell. I'd be very surprised to see it peak at 15 in the next few weeks, given the looming threat of a ban. Um, But I think it could push eight, eight to 10, but it could also just languish in between three and five. Buy list got as high as seven 15 or something on Saturday afternoon and then collapsed completely down to three or four. Um, with mo- with uh, most of the major vendors, so I, I'm just happy to be out clean on these and have had a you know to have had a second opportunity to do so after missing the first beat. Yeah, well, having gotten burned in the first place, I think that you're probably um, it's probably a safe bet to just get out of the way. I mean, I, my in was early. I was way early. I was in at two twenty five a cop. Yeah, that's so pretty early. So missing the twenty dollar hogax certainly stings a little. But getting out, you know, closer to 10 is still a really nice number. Um, and I'm happy I didn't pull the trigger last Thursday on buy listing them all to CK. <laughs> all right. Uh, following Hogak, Field of the Dead, out of core, Magic 2020, non-foils, two to four, double up. Uh, definitely some standard hype here. You picked this last week and, and you called it for going... Two, two to five. five, it's two to four. I'm sorry, that doesn't count. I'm unbolding this. It didn't do well <laughs> enough. Uh, looks like with the foils also moved from five to 11. So overall, that was a pretty quick turnaround. Yeah, and, and I think that's just on the momentum of LSV's win in Denver. 
uh, two weekends ago. Um, deck's looking good in standard for the rest of the month, and really two months, because it gets all of August, all of September, and then we get Throne of Eldraine. Um, Scape Shift rotates out in early October, and then this deck's probably dead. But Field of the Dead may have legs for modern and or EDH, um, but I think this is mostly a buy list play or a trading play. If you had a couple of, if you got in on these last week when I told you to, kind of thing you definitely want to have in your trade binder if you're haunting your LGS, because if somebody needs to pick up copies to play Scape Shift in the next little while, you could, you know, trade four copies for a $20 modern staple or something and be in good shape. My yeah, I guess my, my concern is that people aren't going to be likely to play all that much standard over the summer. You know, this this is this is the nadir of magic is between the pro tour we just had and the fall set. Um so that's why I'm always a little reluctant to get involved. I mean, I'm generally reluctant to get involved in standard specs period, but even when specking on standard was a really good choice, I'm always a little reluctant to get involved in something whose peak season is between August and October because that's when you just have so few people playing. Of course, those were old numbers too, so I don't know. Maybe it's a little more viable now than it used to be. One of the nice things is that Field of the Dead buy list, the top buy lists are offering last week's price. So you can get out clean at two if you need a backup plan um, if you can't find an exit you'll you can just send them back into card kingdom or cool stuff or whoever and get them off your plate oh that's convenient yeah all right what do you got next for us next on our list we've got twiddle seventh foils going from five to ten dollars this is on the back i suspect of people fooling around with lotus field in modern uh basically twiddling it uh untapping it with twiddle and making a whole bunch of mana um that deck is mostly a meme right now it could end up being a thing that the land generates three mana it could be abused we've talked about that uh, almost since the day it was revealed um and seventh foils if there's a foil that exists in seventh and suddenly becomes relevant seventh is the one that takes off first um since seventh foils are kind of the pinnacle of foil collecting uh for most players uh, there are rarer foils, but 7th is the set that mo- the most foil aficionados chase. So not tremendously surprising here, but I suspect that this is a passing fad more than something that's setting up to be a long-term trend. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, 5 to 10. I mean, I, honestly, if I'm in the market to buy foil twiddles, I will pay $10 for 7th edition ones, because as far as 7th edition foils, that's actually pretty cheap. Yep. Um. All right. Lotless Troll. Wow, really? Lotless Troll? Foils out of Return to Ravnica, 5 to 10 bucks because some of the Hogak lists are using it. Boy, that's a blast from the past. Yeah, I mean, we saw it in the bridge versions they fooled around with Lotless Troll. I didn't see many copies in the list from Mythic Championship. So this could just be echoes of people trying out lists that do run it. Um, I don't think it's on the basis of the top tier play accepting the card as essential. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Magic 25, Ball Lightnings on Commons, 2 to 5. Uh, I mean, this is definitely on the back of the Dreadhorde. No, not Dreadhorde Arcanist. Thunder, Thunderkin Awakener or something like that. Am I close to the Thunderkin Awakener? I feel like that's close. Yes. Wow, did I get yep, it right? That's correct. Wow, un- right. unbelievable. Uh, this is a little... Uh, this is surprising just because there's so many copies of Ball Lightning. Like... Is it just people buying the most recent copy and not bothering to check the other 80 printings of this card? I almost put 
the dark version of Ball Lightning on my cards to watch list this week. Yeah. You can get them for about 15, 20 bucks in like SP to near mint condition, depending on where you're buying them. And if this deck is real, getting to play ball, like the dark borders in your modern deck is hot. Yeah. Doesn't it's not gonna match anything else in your deck, but it's still pretty hot. It's it's cool that you get to use them. Yeah. But exactly. it's very cool. Um where do I go? Glenelendra Liege out of Shadow Moor Foil, 7 to 20. I'm, I'm liking this one because I've got a couple next to me. Um, also, Fairy Hype. I will let you know if I sell any. So far, not <laughs> have put, sold. But I just listed I them last the, night. I have one randomly from my own personal collection that I dug out and put up for 15 today, so I'll let you know the same. All right, we'll keep track. We'll keep track together. They, I mean, Shadow Moor Foils are hard to come by. So I will not at all be surprised to see that one foil move at that price in the next month. Yeah, there was I went looking for a couple Shadowmore foils and there were zero copies, zero near mint copies of a few of them. In fact, this might have been one of them and maybe they've gotten listed in the last like 24 hours, but I yeah, I think there were zero of this available last night. Let me take a look. Do do do, do. there are z- Oh, no, that's Russian. I can cut all these blank spots out. There are, I am the only person selling Nearmint foil Glenelendra lieges on TCG player right now. And I think I'm one of three or four copies under $25 on eBay right now. Yeah. I have mine at 24. So we landed at the same place. <laughs> See what happens. Uh, Dream Chisel at Onslaught. The non-foil is going from two to six. This is Morph Expectations for C19 because we know Morph is one of the themes. I don't like targeting the non-foil Morph cards. There aren't that many of them. I expect most of them will be included. Uh, Dream Chisel has a chance of not being, but you're rolling dice there. Um, I don't want to be deep on anything like that. Ditto the next thing. Weaver of Lies uh, out of Legions. The foils from $1.50 to six. I, I just... How good does a morph commander need to be for people to get excited and start buying foil morph cards? They can print. I mean, they could print a pretty busted morph commander. Like if they printed a commander that said unmorph or turning face down creatures you control costs two less. Turning face down creatures you control face up costs two less. That's cool. Because the biggest problem with morph has always been that it's annoyingly expensive to do it. Um... And giving you the and, and like a, a good mana reduction will help a lot in into getting to do this type of stuff because the idea of getting to play all these face down creatures and be tricky with it and be like oh what have I got what have I got that's that's kind of cool um, but I agree it's not the type of mechanic that people flock to so if they build a very cool kind of powerful morph commander at precon I think some of these have some legs if they build another minotaur. They all kind of fall flat on their face. Another way they could go is something like when you play a creature face down, you you take one of your opponent's creatures and put it face down. Maybe. Because that Pete like takes people's commanders and combo creatures out of the mix and forces them to flip them back over, which is a pretty big mana denial strategy, really. Yeah, when you un when you unmorph one of your creatures, morph an opponent's. Or just when you play the morph. If you play a creature face down, you also flip one of your opponent's creatures face down. It's pretty strong. Yeah, there are a lot of different ways they could go with it. It's not the commander that I'm worried about. It's the support in the deck. 
they they have to print some new morph cards too to really get like some strength because as you said morph cards are a lot of them are old and they're over costed versus you know current design philosophy so they really need to put five or ten busted new morph cards including the commanders in for people to get pretty excited and as we said earlier i think the onslaught enchantments that relate to morph those foils are probably more relevant than some of this other stuff uh yeah the enchantments tend to be pretty solid there for sure enchantments are a popular card type in edh because last week you were saying like there's like two of them. I think there's the one in, one in a green and then the green and a blue. Yeah, Trail of Mystery and something. Whatever the other one is. And those are essential in the deck and might be one of the first foils you would upgrade because it's never getting cut from your list. I agree there too. I agree there All too. Right. Already probably too much time on Morph. But Mana <laughs> Breach out of Exodus, non-foils, a dollar to eight. And the 7th edition ones also went from $1 to 6 This is on the back of Chilean hype because Mana Breach says when people cast a spell, they pick up a land. And when Chilean, what Chilean's, what Chilean's ability is, is that if you play a creature, you get to put a, play a land out of your hand, right? So basically, if you have Mana Breach on the table and Chilean is your commander, then you're ignoring the downside of Mana Breach. Hmm. I can buy it. I can buy it. And so if, if buy list even gets into the 2 to $4 range on Mana Breach, anybody who got in on those is going to do just fine. Yeah, that's it nifty. It was like 7th se- edition and Exodus are both a long time ago. So, And this is the kind of stuff the bulk guys will have a field day with because they probably have a ton of this sitting around. Uh, the the um, Mana Breach is a cool card that's tempting to play regardless. And generally, I think people aren't playing it because the penalty is so, like it's just annoying enough that they still don't get they still don't bother. Uh, but having a commander that gives you the option to play Mana Breach is kind of fun. Exodus Mana Breaches are at 260 credit on Card Kingdom. So if you were in on it at a dollar last week, you're already very, very sweet. That's pretty nice. And they will take 55 copies. That's fairly confident. What did you say the buy list is at? 260. Yeah. Darn, my secret source is sold out. <laughs> all right uh final one of the week uh usually this is a ridiculous card and this week is no exception chrome shell crab out of legions foils 250 to 40 let's call that realistically 20 dollars or something morph expectations from c19 one of the older foils no big deal moving right along i have let's get into two of those bad boys <laughs> let me know if you get to unload those anywhere north of 15 dollars will do all right, so cards to watch this week, segment two. Uh, I think we got a strong, if shorter, roster than recent weeks. Uh, my first pick is a revisit. I'm pretty sure we called this when it first came out. Yep. Um, and it looks like the time is right to be mentioning it again. Ristic Study Judge Foils are no longer in circulation via, vis-a-vis the old version of the Judge program. They came out in over a six-month period, and that is all over. So... You can still get you can get copies lying around at about sixty. I sold copies over a hundred several months ago, so I know the market can support that price once the rest of the inventory drains and people realize that these are starting to dry up. It's going to be the usual judge foil masterpiece situation where the first wave the price holds up pretty well, the second wave the price crashes. Six to twelve months later, the inventory drains out, and then the price goes back close to whatever the peak was the first time. 
Um, fairly reliable pattern, probably won't last into the future with future judge foils because of some of the changes we're going to talk about today. Um, but Rhystic Study is the best, possibly one of the best blue cards of all time for Commander. The judge foils will get there. So I'm calling it 60, 60 to 80 conservatively for a 33% gain, but realistically it's probably 60 to 100 within 12 to 18 months at the outside. It could be easily sooner. I was just thinking about these today, actually. Um about the Rhystic studies and wondering what the supply looked like and the reprint schedule and uh, what prices were if it had settled because I was curious about trying to find an in again. I, I do think that these are still really well positioned, um, you know, especially longer term. It's not something you're looking to flip in the next two months, but man, it is. I don't I don't think it's I think Cyclonic Rift is still the most popular blue card, but Rhystic study is real high up there. Uh, and if you're getting in at 60 bucks for these foils, uh, that that seems juicy, especially as these are going to get older. And these are languishing in Europe under forty five dollars. Mm. So the euro the euro guys should stock up and then plan to wait about a year, year and a half. This is going to be like the second wave of spikes related to Kaladesh masterpieces, where some of the stuff we bought we were like, oh, it didn't really work out as fast as we were hoping, and then like a year later it all went to like one hundred, one fifty, two hundred, and all those 30 and $40 things just turned into easy money. Um, judge foils that are this good, stuff like Teferi's protection, this, etc. There's, I, I have no fear whatsoever that they're, it's not going to get there. I'm They'd s- have to ban it. If they banned it in EDH, that would be like the only chance. And I haven't heard the card ever mentioned in the same breath as banning with that format. No, I'm so disappointed I bought a house this year. <laughs> it's just it's the finished. worst possible year to have done this. You chose an alternate investment strategy that I'm sure will do well. Now that I've seen your place, I I feel even better about your decision. It mm. is a stunning location. Mm. I love I love your proximity to that waterway. I I love our our location as well. Uh, I don't love <laughs> looking around my house and going. 2,000, 6,000, 4,000, <laughs> 9,000. And then I walk upstairs and I'm like 120,000. <laughs> all the yeah, projects that I see. It's rough. Um, well, one way I'm going to get there is by buying up Tatiova Benthic Druids. Uh, I'm looking at the foils here out of Dominaria. Uh, uncommon, actually. Um it's uh, on a short to mid timeline. You can snag these around six bucks right now. And the Dominaria copies, there's a couple around six. Then they jump up to 650 and seven supply. There's 17 vendors, most um, place set or less, especially if you're under uh, like 10 bucks. It's basically one to two copies. There's one guy with a pot with like 20 but those are like 850 or nine bucks so you're already a 50 percent gain up from the six bucks i'm talking about the pre-release cards are uh, are a little cheaper they're more floating more around. they're also floating around six maybe seven but supply is super shallow it looks like there's eight copies there right now um tatiova is rapidly becoming one of the most popular simic cards in the format and it's hard to see that number on eda truck because we don't have short-term stats like the guys who run EDH rec can run that, but they don't make it public despite me asking over and over again for them to add that they haven't yet. Um, but you'll notice if you're checking EDH rec regularly, how often you see Tatiova. She's in every deck. She's like a high synergy card in every deck that you look at that runs Simic. Um, 
add to this that we just got what's his name golos godos uh the new commander from m20 golos tireless pilgrim the artifact the better solemn locker that you can pay eight uh seven to just like cast the top three cards of your library for free uh She's like a sl- she's a windmill slam in that deck. So there's just so much overall EDH rock demand or EDH demand for this card that these foils are going to go soon. And I don't care if it's an uncommon. I don't care if Dominaria is recent. Everybody buy everyone who plays EDH wants this card, and they probably want more than one. So getting in at five or six bucks is superb. And I think you're looking at probably a fifteen dollar exit, possibly this year. Yeah. I can buy it. The uncommon status is the only thing holding me back, but that doesn't matter if the inventory is already lowish. How many how many listings on TCG right now? There are between non between pre-release and pack foil, there are some there is like 25 vendors for probably roughly 55 to 70 copies, but I bet there are 20 20 to 25 at under seven dollars it's a steep ramp yeah i like this a lot this, this is gonna get there for sure e- easy breezy pick and then europe even cheaper because edh is weaker there and even if you don't uh, hit 15 like i still think you're getting you can get 12 almost definitely i'm, I'm pretty sure i picked up some russian photos of this early on and i think i confidently paid 15 to 20 or something um, thinking it was a future fifty or sixty dollar Russian foil. Mm-hmm. Probably. Like, again, we we mentioned briefly Chulain Teller of Tales. This is the Bant two Bant two four Vigilance Human Druid that they revealed from the Brawl decks. Was it? Um, whenever you cast a creature spell, draw a card. Then you may put a land card from your hand onto the battlefield. Well, Tatiova really likes that. Yarok has a whole bunch of combos that get along well with Tatiova. Um, and, uh, and these Lands Matters cards are a big deal in green, especially for EDH, and you're going to see it over and over and over again. So it's like, se- it's a central theme of the color in the format that's never going to change. It's o- only going to get reinforced more and more over time. And this is a busted engine. Like, gain a life draw card every time a land enters. You go fetch, crack, put a land into play. You do, like... <laughs> Uh, what's that green common out of Modern Horizons that's Harrow on a stick? Spring Bloom Druid or whatever it is. Sounds about right. Uh, I pulled about 30 copies of those out of my modern Russian Modern Horizons and put those aside to be placed into a EDH trade binder, and I'm sure they will do just fine as like $2 trade value at some point down the road. Oh, yeah, um, for sure. Because all, you know, Kodama's Reach... The druid, etc., etc., etc. Like the number of cards that play well with Tatiova is just endless. Yeah. All right, great pick. Um, let's see. My next one: Urborg Tomb of Yogmoth Box Topper Edition is the box topper from Ultimate Masters with the lowest current inventory on TCG Player. Um, buy price in and around ninety dollars whether from TCG or a couple of other vendors that have them priced low. There have been eBay coupons that are active this evening, uh, TCG coupon the other day. Um, this is the kind of card, I think, that if you think you're going to use it in EDH and or modern, uh, you don't want to hold off much longer because this is going to be a future 130, 140, 150 within a year or so as the inventory continues to drain. 
Um, it hasn't had that many foil printings, and this is by far the most important other than the original pack foil from Plane Shift? Planar Chaos. Planar Chaos, thank you. Um, I always get those two mixed up. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think this one's easy breezy. There's hardly any inventory left, and it's going to get there. Man, there are it's no like copies just... of this. And it's a massive EDH card. Yeah, like extremely so. I mean, you're looking at, yeah, 90 bucks was a couple of 90, then you five copies in, you're at 100. And I mean, let's and see. 30,000 plus reported decks, even on the pared down data set at EDH Rec. Yeah. 14% of all possible decks that could that could want to play it do play it. This is looking, it should probably be higher. This is looking juicy. I'm just scrolling through. Yeah, I, I, I can already see just by its inventory relative to all the other box toppers, it is at like half or less than everything else. So I think this... the strongest comp- strongest competition it has is that because Ultimate Masters had box topper and pack foils, the pack foils create some amount of drag because some people may just choose. It's the same art and everything, so it's just like whether you want extended borders. Um, that certainly, you know, out of every three sales or four sales, maybe three of them are the cheaper copy. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I would want to be holding a hundred copies of this, but Whew. you know, one, two, three, four, five, sure. Nine thousand dollars worth of Urborgs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm buying nine thousand worth of Russian Horizons this this month. So at least you've got some variety there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it certainly seems to be, of all the box toppers, it's definitely one of the best positioned. The EDH play pattern is absurd. Um, it's not going to get less absurd. And the supply seems lower than almost all the other stuff out of that set. So, and I mean, 190 to 130 to me doesn't even seem like that big of a jump in the sense that m- mentally it's not that much of a leap to pay 90 to pay 130. But you're, But at the same time, if you're the one making that flip, you're making 40 bucks a copy. So that seems pretty solid. Okay, uh, my second pick this week, roughly the same price point, uh, but a different tactic. Tatiova was based on her uh, impressive EDH demand and you know the expectation that will continue moving forward. This card is Monastery Swift Spear. And rather than talking about EDH, we're talking about Modern. Obviously, uh, Monastery Swift Spear, huge part of um, Is It Phoenix decks, uh, basically a lock in there, and really a lock in almost any red deck, even the like very burn-heavy red decks like Monastery Swift Spear, because she's so cheap, and you just go burn, 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 and also I'm swinging with a 4-5. Uh, like, that you lose almost nothing playing Monastery Swift Spear, but you have a lot to gain. Um Again, I think Hogak's gonna get gonna go out the window. It's amazing how fast we've changed our, or should I say the the conversation that on that has changed. But in any case, I do think Hogak's gonna go. Is it Phoenix? Is already? It doesn't look like it's the best deck in the format today, but it will be once Hogak is gone. Um, and unless they take Faithless Suiting and or Monomorphos with Hogak, Phoenix will be the best deck in the format for a while, uh, which is just gonna make Swift Spear look even better. But even still, this just shows up in every aggressive red deck. You can get foils out of um, IMA for around five bucks or so. Uh, and supply is supply on this one's a little deeper. So you're looking at about 30 vendors, but there's only, again, one guy with basically more than one copy. He's got several play sets, but they're also eight, eight not five. Um, and the Dragons of Tarkir printing. 
is sitting at, let's see, so the IMA copies are at five or so. You'll pay seven for the Dragons of Tarkir foil, so they're already a bump right there. Um, and then they ramp to nine and ten dollars very quickly, like one place that in. So I think you go after the IMA foils here. Um, because the buy-in is a little bit lower, and I expect them to catch the kinds of Tarkir foils probably within the within this year, possibly um, by summer next year. And but realistically, I think you're looking at an out somewhere in the ten to fifteen range, um, and possibly even better or sooner if Hogak gets banned. It's an interesting card to contrast against Tatiova, right? Because it's played as a four of. You buy four at a time. As you said, if you're into aggressive red decks, you will probably find a home for them one way or the other. Um, some version of Phoenix or some version of Burn. There's also been wild Nactali, like zoo-style decks popping up. A whole bunch of them were in the latest deck dump um, and included this card. So it has a home for sure, um, but it's certainly more meta-dependent overall than Tatiova, whose home is, I think, you know, assured. But people buy less copies of it at a time. So even though the inventory is deeper on Swift Spear, I would say they're probably roughly equivalent. Um, I feel a little bit more confident with Tatiova. Just be, I'm not sure I even have good justification for that. It would just be typically my preference to hit up EDH foils before modern foils, especially in uncommons. But both seem good. I, um, I, I will say I think I think Monastery Swift Spear is as close to a format staple as you can reasonably be like, it seems like it has permeated the, the, the fundamental understanding that players have of modern as a, Oh yes, this is like the red card. Like if you would ever consider playing lava spike in your deck, you have monstrous spirits in there. Like it's just, it's just a card you have to have if you're playing modern and ever want to cast those types of cards. It's just permanent to me um, because it has been since, since it was printed. According to Magic uh, Online data filtered through uh, Goldfish, it's the 14th most played creature in the format. 8% of decks run it, and they always run it as a 4 of. Yeah. Those are, those are good stats. Yeah. I guess my point is just I think some cards feel possibly um, impermanent within Modern, and other cards you intuit as feeling like they're here to stay. And to me, Monastery Swift Spirit is a here-to-stay. But fair enough. Yeah. All right. My final pick of the week is Blasone, a rare out of War of the Spark. I'm going to give credit to Kyle Lopez, uh, ex of other games, and he's currently uh, building up a, a new project whose name I can't recall, but shout out to Kyle. He was blasting off about this on Twitter about how everybody should be buying all of the copies of Blasone they could find, that it fits in a whole bunch of different modern decks. So prompted me to at least do a little bit of background research to see if I agreed. I'm not sure I do agree on the non-foils because a lot of decks run it as a one or a two of. It is in 17% of all the decks uh, on Magic Online, but they typically only run 1.6 copies. So that leads me to thinking that foils are the better bet um, over non-foils. You do see it show up in Eldrazi Tron and Hogak. And Bant Scapeshift and Standard was running it. Um, and Colorless Eldrazi and Mono Blue Tron run it. I mean, pretty much any deck that can afford the Colorless Utility slot and has reason to be wanting to kill low cast and cost permanents um, has reason to find, you know, make use of Blast Zone. And it's a fairly unique effect. That was flagged right as soon as it was uh, revealed for war. So foils are already relatively pricey um, at around $14, $16 US. 
Uh, I think that if you get in on the train now and you plan to sit for a while, probably 12 to 16 months, you'll probably get off between 25 and 30 for, say, a 50 to 75 percent gain. Hmm. I don't I guess I'm not familiar enough with the, the play pattern of Blast Zone yet to really have a good sense of this. But okay, this is the car this is the engineered explosives card. Yeah, so the, the text on Blast Zone is it enters the battlefield with a charge counter. It taps for colorless, doesn't come into play tapped. For XX tap, put X charge counters on it, which you can so you can build it up. And then three sack destroy each non-land permanent with converted mana cost equal to the number of charge counters on Blast Zone. So the decks that run it most often, of course, are going to be the ones with Tron lands because they can really, you know, they have the most control over setting it to the casting cost they need it to be at to clear problematic permanents off the board. And it can deal with Planeswalkers. I mean, it's a card from War of the Spark. So it was one of the safety outlets that was built into that set in case they got out of control in Standard. Um, but of course, in Standard, you don't have access to that, the same kind of mana ramp that you do via the Tron lands in Modern. Um, and it's just such a unique effect, and you see it show up in winning Tron lists, and Tron looks very well positioned. Not only is Tron still good in the, Ho- the world of Hogak, um, including winning the Mythic Championship this weekend, um, but it is it has four or five different variants, so it can adjust to the meta very easily by swapping which colors it's dipping into in the sideboard. Um, and nearly all of them want, as I said, one to two copies. That's why you see it as a 1.6. Um, but showing up in a high percentage of overall decks because of how many different variants of drawn there are. It does seem to be beating most of the other lands released in the same general era. Uh, there's like two lands that were print, two or three lands printed within a year that seem to be played more EDH decks, but I mean, that's not much. So it's definitely got a pretty good position in that regards. Um, well, and the, and, the, and the kicker here is that it's also in the top 20 EDH cards from War because it's seeing plenty of EDH play. EDH games go longer, you tend to see a lot of mana ramp. If you got a deck like a Tatiova, this becomes something that you can set to a very specific level and then set off your ver- your custom-tailored version of a Nevernull's disc to clear the board? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I don't doubt the power of the card at all. I think that you're you're very likely to get paid on this so long as you avoid a reprint, which is, you know, not... I, I get, Not that it's any more likely than anything else. I'm just thinking, like, you're going to be waiting a little bit longer, so the rate odds of that come up a little bit. But I do think, you know, 15 to 16 bucks for Engineered Explosives on a land... The foils does look pretty good, and it's not the it's not the type of card that would be surprising if you kind of turn around, and it's twenty five dollars. Like I wouldn't be that surprised, I guess. So this seems like it's going to be a sneaker, like you're not really going to notice, and then it's just going to be ten or fifteen bucks higher. Yeah, it's it's going to keep winning tournaments and not being talked about. And yeah. as you said, it's just going to people are going to buy them onesie twosie here and there as they're building the variety of decks that use it, and then we're going to wake up in eight, twelve, sixteen months and it's just there's going to be no supply and the ramp's going to be like 15 18 20 24 24 24 30 or something and it's going to hit a tipping point okay i like it i think that's fair i think that's a fair choice people don't need to rush in on this one i think you can like pick and choose your moments and make use of coupons and whatever but i would like especially if you you think you're going to play any of the decks that use this in modern and you think you might want foils no reason to hold off this is war is already well past peak supply yeah 
Okay, let's move on to segment three of the metagame we can review. Uh, you've got quite a a stat breakdown here, so I'm going to let you explain this. Yeah, I built a nice little chart in here for us to reference because there's a couple of things. First of all, the Mythic Championships for a while now have been mixed tournaments where on any given day they have to do a draft, then they play a certain number of rounds of Constructed. I think it's either five or six. can't remember off the top of my head. Um, and so... The, de- the modern decks that make it to the top eight, where they play only modern, um, are not necessarily the decks that did best out of the, the composite of the modern rounds. So one of the things you want to do coming out of a Mythic Championship is look at, you know, which decks were in the top eight, but also which decks did best. And it just so happens <coughs> that this weekend was one of the busiest weekends for major modern tournaments, maybe of all time. We had the... Mythic Championship in Barcelona, and because it was a Magic Fest, there was also a GP at Barcelona, which actually had three times as many players and decks, consequently, um, as the Pro Tour. There was SCG Open Columbus was modern. They also ran an SCG Classic on the side. Um, there was a Magic uh, Online MCQ. And so between all of that, we have something like 4,000 um, pieces of data and five different top eight lists to look at. So starting from the top, um, certainly the story heading into uh, the first day of the Mythic Championship was that Hogak was everywhere. It was um, one of the highest percentages that anybody had seen in, in quite some time. People were talking about its, its comparison to Eldrazi Winter when the Eldrazi deck got access to Eye of Ugin and Cheap Eldrazi um, via Thought Not Seer and Reality Smasher, and all of a sudden that just like completely took over Modern um, and resulted in a variety of bans. Um, Hogak showed up as 21% of the day one meta, 98 players were on it, followed by Is It Phoenix, 10% of the meta, Eldrazi Tron was close to 10, Humans was 8.3, Blue White Control 8.3, and then Jund, Tron, Urza, Thopter Sword, Burned Reg, Mono Red Phoenix. So most of the decks that people expected to see there, I don't think everybody um, that was a little further removed from this tournament understood that Hogak was going to come back with that much of a vengeance. We were already talking last week about, you know, don't count Hogak out and Hogak is a buy. Um, and that certainly paid off. But now that we've seen how that all broke down, um, the heat is really on. Because the most played card of the tournament was actually Leyline of the Void with 836 registered copies. If that was wild. Uh, most of them were still in sideboards, but a, a, probably something like 20% of the decks that were running it were running at least a couple of copies in the main. Um, because they were overcompensating for Hogak to such a degree. And as it, as it all turned out, Hogak only put one uh, player in the top eight of the tournament. Um, the top eight was Mono Green Tron. Uh, was first followed by hardened scales which i don't think i think it was a deck that most people completely counted out but uh, this particular player did pretty well with eldrazi tron in third classic jund in fourth hogak again in fifth and then i'm i have new jund in sixth and the way i'm differentiating them is that the classic jund is like dark confidence and so forth the new jund is with red and six um red phoenix in seventh and the urza uh uh, Thopter Sword combo made the top eight as well. Now we have to contrast it against the actual uh, modern top eight modern decks in terms of points achieved in the modern segment of the tournament because that gives us a different perspective. Because even though T- Hogak only took one slot in the top eight, 
the top slot amongst the best of the modern decks was actually Is It Phoenix with 27 points, the only uh, player slash deck to get there. Hogak had 25 points, Jund 25 points, and then of the next five, three of them were Hogak on 24 points. There was a humans list and another Jund list. So what that tells us is that Hogak is doing significantly better than the top eight would suggest. And then if we look at the results from these other tournaments, um, we get somewhat similar of a picture. Um, with Hogak actually doing better on the broader stage than was suggested by the top eight. So over at SCG Open Columbus, it was also won by Mono Green Tron. So that seems very well positioned in this Hogak meta. But then second and third were both Hogak. Then you had an Is It Phoenix. And then fifth and sixth were both Hogak. And then Urza. And then another Mono Green Tron. In their classic at the same event, they had Urza in first, then Amulet Titan, Humans, Mono Green Tron, Gruel Arclight. This was Arclight, basically mono red Arclight Phoenix with Ren and Six. Hmm. Uh, one of the more interesting lists. And then Hogak, and then Jund and Merfolk. That's the smallest tournament, probably the loosest set of stats, and that tends to be the people that flunked out of the main event um, <laughs> at, Col- at Columbus and then moved over to try to spike that one. So I always take the classics with a you know slightly more salt than the main event for sure. But then we can look at the the GP that was run alongside the Mythic Championship at the Magic Fest. And in that case, Jund was first and second, Esper Control in third, Humans in fourth, Eldrazi Tron, and then a Hogak, Is It Phoenix, and then an Urza. So we're seeing a lot of the same lists. And then the MTGO uh, MCQ, which had 276 players, was Hogak in first, Red Phoenix, Red Phoenix, Hogak, Abzan Toolbox, that's like the Zero Remedies action, uh, mono green tron death shadow and blue white control now if we add all of this up we have 40 top eight slots amongst these tournaments and hogak is the clear winner with taking 12 out of a possible 40 so over 25 percent of the top eight slots and the next closest deck is not close it's jund with five slots green tron taking four although it did take two wins um urza had three slots red phoenix and is it phoenix combined for six slots so i guess you can argue that that might actually be, if, if you combine all versions of Arclight Phoenix, then it's you know still only half as many slots as Hogak. You can also say that Eldrazi Tron plus Green Tron equals six. So you could argue that both Phoenix variants and Tron variants were about half as good as Hogak overall. And then you have humans taking three, and then we have Death Shadow, Merfolk, Toolbox, and Esper Control all taking one slot. The end result of all of that is Hogak looks like it's got to go. Yeah, that it doesn't. There are so many different ways to slice this pie, so many metrics to run, so many stats to check, but it all seems to point to the same direction. You have a card that is suppressing, that, that is becoming dominant in a format where the biggest. The second biggest sin is dominance. The biggest sin is making is dragging your feet, which is why eggs got the eggs and KCI got the ban. Um, but beyond those interminable turns, it's like really nobody should be able to get more than five. You know, five percent is like tier one decks. Like seven and eight percent is pushing it. Ten percent is just it's too much. And like this level of top eight is is too much. And when you had the Pro Tour where 
the number like the most popular card registered is a hate card for this that's clearly warping the format too uh so i i, I it seems like it's pretty straightforward here and i was kind of laughing when the gp barcelona doesn't have only has one hogak list in it it's because everyone that was playing hogak stayed in the pro tour <laughs> like they they were able you know they didn't drop because they, their record was good enough to day two i think seth was saying something about how the conversion rate for hogak like hogak showed up with like what was it 20 percent of the day one field or something and then converted at like 40 percent like it was just like it doubled its rate it was some ridiculous conversion number so well, one one of the one of the death nails potentially is that the hogak win rate was the highest at the mythic championship it was like 55 percent or something oh yeah there's a lot and so I think like, any one of these problems could be pushed off, uh, like they could punt down the road. But given that they, it already caught a consequential ban and bridge from below getting banned and came right back in a new form that some people would argue um, has is basically like a half turn to return slower, but more consistent overall. Like it's not even that it got much worse. <laughs> in some ways, it just got better. Um, in the latest list and its win percentage and how well it did amongst all these tournaments and the fact that the corner has now turned on Magic Online where it is now the most played deck um, taking up 10% of the meta and the fact that people have to pre-sideboard against it in a lot of cases I think they're going to bite the bullet and on August 26th I expect them to just ban Hogak. Because yeah. I they, they, they like to look at the Magic Online data. I don't think that data is going to get much better. Um, they're going to see plenty. The, the greater percentage of the meta Hogak claims, the more main deck ley line of the void they're going to get. And that is a narrative that people are not going to push back on very hard. Everyone will accept this ban as necessary, even if it pisses them off that these cards you know, just got printed and are not playable. If I was them, I would be thinking about what whether there would be some kind of compensation for Hogak being banned when they just sold it to us three months ago. But it's a lot of money. It's a lot of work. They don't tend to handle those ad hoc marketing efforts very well. So maybe they it's just tough luck your Hogaks are dead. Yeah, I mean, they could make the, the point that like, look, Modern Horizons is packed with other stuff. You know the risk buying this. Like, it's just part of playing collectible magic and it's a bummer that it happened, but them's the breaks right you they can also they can also claim that it's still a legacy card and still an edh card which it is yeah yeah it's, it's not but yes yeah, so they can make that claim um i think they'll just choose not to get involved because mostly i think people are rather just going to be happy to see it gone rather than uh having gotten feeling like they got burned i mean really the best way best comparison is to dial it back to uh Back when Sahili was in standard, the Felidar Sahili combo, and they released the ban list. Sahili was not banned. Not like neither Sahili or Felidar was banned. People went, okay, it's legal. They went out and they bought the cards, and then three days later, they put out an emergency update to the ban list and went, eh, everyone was pissed, so never mind, we are gonna ban it. And everyone who waited for the ban list change saw that it wasn't banned, went out and bought it, and then they banned it. And they still said, too damn bad. So if they weren't doing anything for people then, they're sure as hell not doing anything for people now. Uh, that, by the way, was 
savage and wizards should be embarrassed anyone someone mentions the word Sahili out loud uh but all this points to i i think it's going and it's not even like you can say okay well we're gonna get rid of altar of dementia because altar's not in most of the builds and you could say okay well we're gonna get rid of grave caller to try and like you know bring it back but they already took a whack at the deck without going after the brand new staple card and it failed miserably so they can't risk doing that again they can't risk trying a second time to get rid of to to slow the deck way down and still falling short because then they're stuck going still having the ban hogak on the third pass but now having two cards on the ban list that didn't need to be there in the first place so i mean like theoretically they could go after Gravecrawler, and if it still doesn't do it maybe they go after bloodgast and if it still doesn't do it then they go okay you know what hogak's banned but we're giving you the other three cards back like there's a universe in which that happens, but that's so far outside of their typical modus operandi that I wouldn't expect it to happen. I think they're just going to let Hogarth go. Yeah. So. So sell, sell your Hogax. Yeah, that's that's it's a lot of words to say. Sell your Hogax because the damn card's getting banned. And the the follow up to this is okay. Where do we go after Hogax ban? Well, is it Phoenix is going to be big. There's not really any question there. Tron is going to be pretty well positioned, although I think part of Tron's recent success is based on Dredge being good. It seems like the deck seems well positioned. So someone smarter than me would have to try and figure out like, okay, well, if Hogak's gone, is it Phoenix gets more popular? What does that do for Tron? I don't know all of these specific metagame matchups well enough to speak to them, um, but that's kind of where you have to turn your attention. But I don't see any like obscure sideline decks suddenly getting really popular after Hogak goes and opening the door to some great spec. I just think you're going to see the other good decks kind of fill in those gaps a little bit more. One of the big stories here is that Jund looks to be back on the agenda when it was completely counted out for most of the rest of this year. Um, Red and Six has had a major impact on the deck, um, and it has fresh synergies. It's pre-sideboarded a little bit against a lot of X1s, with Ren being able to ping them off. Um, and with the uh, lands that, uh, the additional canopy lands like Nurturing Peatland that Ren can recycle out of your graveyard, gives you a little bit more reach lets you, you know, get a little bit more grindy card advantage. And I, I suspect that, that that incarnation of Jund is largely independent of Hogak's presence uh, in the format. We're going to see it make multiple top eights in the next six months once Hogak is gone. Mm-hmm. That's, and that's partly why, like, the the CRI, or, um, sorry, the... Oh, shoot, now I lost my train of thought. Well, that's what I get for looking away from my computer monitor for a moment while I was thinking. Um, uh, yeah. All right. Let's bottom move line. On. Bottom line: Tron, Phoenix, Humans, Jund, Urza, all look like very viable decks coming out of uh, once Hogak is gone. Oh, that- so I, I don't actually. Pe- people have been talking about how it's going to like Hogak being gone would open the format for all sorts of wild and and crazy things to happen. I don't think that's true. At your LGS, it, it will be true, but it was already true. Um, at top eight tables, you're just going to see those other five decks fill in the gaps. They, Looking at their, you know, all these decks that had between two and six podium finishes out of 40 slots, they're just going to get a few more. They're going to eat up the ones that Hogak leaves behind. And keep in mind, even if Hogak's gone, um, Vengevine decks might not be completely dead. <laughs> they were doing just fine before they had the new cards um, here and there. And... 
you know, some of the stuff people have learned in their deck construction for the various incarnations of Hogak may point them back in that direction. And if all of that falls apart and Vengevine's back off the table for now, that's a card that has come back, you know, been banned to come back and has, you know, never really managed to go away for very long. And if all of that is irrelevant, Dredge is still a very viable deck. Oh, yeah. Just classic Dredge. For Oh, for sure, for sure. This is by no means the death of Dredge. Uh, that's not happening whatsoever. This is just, okay, it takes a backseat while uh, the graveyard hate subsides or and people try and figure out what the necessary build of the deck looks like now. Uh, but I don't think for a second that this would means Dredge is out of the picture at all. Um, I, I am starting to wonder, like, whether things like Agent Stirrings and Faithless Looting are back on the radar. Um, they're obviously both emblematic of the format, but also probably problematic. Um, in the long term, they are cards that enable some of the most powerful strategies in the format. They're reluctant to get rid of them because it could sideline too many decks all at once, so they're probably safe. But every time there's a problem... The, the same set of cards are being spoken in the same breath. So we'll see. Well, I would love for Wizards to take a big swing here and go, you know what? Hogak's busted. But let's take a moment to really do this right and go, Hogak, gone. Faithless Looting, gone. Ancient Stirrings, gone. Monomorphos, gone. Okay, have fun. Right? Okay, so, so here's what <laughs> I actually think. That, here's what I think they should try, actually. If you're serious about your stewardship of the format then what you do is you say temporary ban for the month of october the following 10 cards are out of modern have fun and you announce it far enough ahead that people have you know time to adjust their decks and switch decks and whatever leading into the that set of tournaments and then you just check your results and see how it goes and see what the feedback's like from the players and if all the pros you know are fronting a narrative coming out of that period saying this is a better modern then you can make the argument that you're going to implement. <sighs> see, and, and if the feedback is, yeah, this is better, but you know, I'd like to play with my foil faithless lootings I bought last year, then you can decide not to do it. I mean, they did this with the London Mulligan rule. And it, I would much rather, you know, as a person who has a large modern collection, plays mostly at the LGS level here and there, I, I would be interested to explore that format for a bit put some cards aside and then see where we end up just to see what the format looks like so i think that that idea is very cool but that seems like it would never work in execution only because the format takes time to work like they could not touch the let's okay let's say they ban hogak and that they do not touch the card pool for six months. Like, no cards are added, no cards are removed. The modern six months from now, it looks different than it does today. Not dramatically, not like Is It Phoenix disappears, but modern tends to be to move a good bit even without major changes to the card pool. And it takes time. So if you were to, say, um, say okay, for one month, these 10 cards are banned it's going to be such an upheaval that like the 30 days wouldn't give you enough data to figure out what the change was you need much longer i think realistically you need six months before you can say okay did we like this change or not so they could do it they could say okay for a six month period we're doing this 
um, which might finally give which might give them enough room to get a feel for it. But you know, it's kind of it kind of reminds me of like if they just did one event, it'd be like, well, how the hell is anyone going to figure out if this is better? Because the, no one has time to like figure out how to metagame or anything like that. You don't actually have a feel for what works. So everyone's just going to show up with cannons and hope that theirs is better than everyone else's. What if, what if you just do it for? Well, I, I think you're right that one event doesn't work. I think one month might be too short, but three months is probably fine. It might be. It depends on how much information they're looking for. They they could say, you know, I could see them saying we're going to ban these 10 cards for three months and then we're going to unban them. And then we're going to talk. Then we're going to come back and make a decision. You know, we're going to unban these again and then we will decide if they're going to stay legal or not and kind of bounce all over the place. I mean, as long as you let people know kind of ahead of time, it doesn't feel terrible. It, f- it seems kind of wild, but at the same time, I feel like People might appreciate Wizards really trying to do something funky with it. I mean, what's what's the worst case scenario? I mean, people love building for fresh formats. And a lot of the enfranchised players believe these cards are busted anyway. So remove a bunch of them and see what happens. Yeah, I, I, think, I think overall Wizards does... It uses the modern ban list too lightly. I think they should add and subtract cards faster than they do because it makes it more fun for everybody to feel like there's some variation. Um, and, and if and, you and build, is- I would say if you build in the expectation that stuff gets added and removed, it's not going to feel as awful when your card gets banned because you just know that that's a thing that happens here. And, and it might come back. So like, what what if it was just, you know, every three months we're, we are adding and subtracting 10 cards or we are added, adding and subtracting five cards. And that was just a feature of the format, that the format constantly gets shaken up. You have to think about the format you're walking into. We don't invalidate entire decks, but you're probably going to want to own two or three just so that you, you're, you're always ready to go. And I, I don't think that's that crazy because, I mean, Standard enjoys a two-year rotation period. Three months might be a lot, but what if it was every six months modern gets a little shake up and then some things come move on or off the permanent ban list as a result? I, I wonder if they have any data on this, because now that we're talking about it, it does sound kind of similar to the way that MOBAs tend to use their their pre their per game ban list i don't know if you play them much i actually don't play mobas at all but i'm aware that this is how they function that you can ban heroes from the other team like my team of five gets to pick three heroes your team cannot pick and your team gets to pick ones that we can't play so you have to be able to play a couple different heroes in order to be able to play the game at all because if yours gets banned you're just out uh, I, and it, it just sort of keeps like every single game is going to be a little different because you're banning the different heroes on different teams. And it, it doesn't have to be that fast. But like there is a precedent in popular digital media where that type of thing happens. And certainly it's easier in digital. Like obviously Hearthstone has just tweaked cards over time when it needed to. And just boom, now your card costs a different amount. Right. Um, and I actually was thinking today about is it really that crazy to just send LGSs, a pa- like LGSs that are part of the the official network, um, a pile of, say, stickers that can be put on cards? Like, could they just move Hogak to 10 casting costs or something or make him smaller or remove Trample and just leave him a playable card? It seems... Like, obviously, that's a massive hassle, but would if, if you're the player that bought 
foil Hogax, would you rather put a little sticker over the casting costs or never get to play them again? That, ah, boy. It's tough, right? Like, it's it's got all sorts of cons, but there's pros, too. And the other, the other thing about the precedent you mentioned is that there are, you know, games that, you know, Apex Legends, like, that just tweak their heroes every few weeks or whatever to keep the meta fresh. That also plays into this. And you could also go through the process of reissuing a card. Like, they just ran a whole bunch of foil sheets for war. You could also just, on the next print run of Modern Horizons, I'm assuming we're talking about a set that actually has another print run forthcoming, which is not clear Modern Horizons does, but it's not crazy that you could go back to the presses and print Hogak at a different casting cost. Yeah, I think... I think the closest you get is you reprint the card with different stats, remove trample, increase cost, whatever, and you send a stack of them to the local stores and you say, okay, we're implementing a program. You show up and for every old Hogak you hand us, we will give you a new one. And we're going to change the name. He's no longer Hogak the Shambling Necropolis. He's Hogak the Rumbling Necropolis. Uh, and then the old one is banned. The new one is legal. Um, essentially, essentially it's a new card, except you get, have, there's an exchange program where you get to trade in your old card for a new one. Uh, I I think that's probably the closest way they do this. It Eh. it doesn't, it doesn't fit into their current operational model. Right. So I'm not, I'm not seriously suggesting this is going to happen. But these are all interesting things to think about. I, I'm not convinced that there aren't better ways to be manicuring modern. With a format like standard, it's not worth it because they're rotating in two years anyway. Two years or less. I mean, the summer sets rotate in a year after they come out. So, you know, you don't want to mess around with Scapeshift. If it's a card like Scapeshift, it's only in the format for a year and isn't relevant in modern. But for, you know, modern cards, people have had their bobs for like 10, 12 years now or even longer. Um, you know, you've had your playset of lightning bolts from whenever, whenever, and an argument can be made that Hogak's not worth saving, like that there's no version of the card that if you push it to the point where it's not playable, it's just unplayable. You know, that's certainly a discussion to be had, like why save a card that's just inherent, like delve as a mechanic may just be inherently broken. They frequently get it wrong. Just leave it alone already. Like dig through time got banned. Treasure cruise got banned. Hogak got banned. Delve is a problem. (laughs) <laughs> and they I, never get the cost right th- there's also something to be said for the fact that once you introduce the ability to modify cards whether via stickers on a card or a trade-in program cards lose some of the potency that they had like this card is absurdly powerful this card will always be absurdly powerful. It is a dangerous weapon that cannot be allowed. You're not allowed to bring this weapon to the fight because it's too powerful. Once you start like neutering them and like tweaking them, they lose some of that mystique, right? Like mind's desire is still mind's desire. Uh, and, but when you, as you modify those, I just feel like the cards lose their luster. And anyone who's played a digital game is familiar with this because they're like, oh yeah, remember when this abil- this item was busted and like it dominated this season and I don't even pick it up off the ground anymore because it's junk. Yeah. I mean, these are all interesting discussion points, but the reality is they're just going to ban it and tell us to suck it up. Yeah, pretty much. All right. So, segment four, topic of the week, the judge program transition humongous shakeup 
in the judge program. Uh, the fate of judges have been kind of up in the air for the last, oh God, two years now. They've come forward with a big change. Uh, essentially, you now have to pay wizards to work for pennies. That is my read on this. I saw a lot of takes like that, including a bunch of like takes from da- the aforementioned Daniel Fournier. That's um, why I wanted him on. <laughs> sometimes, I uh, guess, of this cast. Um, and I think most of the takes I saw were wrong, I think because they were ill-informed. Um, and I think it's important to get to the heart of what's really going on here. I don't think it's the fate of the judges that was ever up for grabs. Like, if you're going to run tournaments, you have to have judges and people are going to have to pay compensate them. That That's happening. But what Wizards is looking to do is distance themselves from judges in the judge program. And have that relationship be between the judges and their actual employers, the people that are running tournaments, who is only wizards on certain high level of events. So wizards becomes one of their employers in certain situations. What's actually happening here is that wizards is distancing themselves from the judge accreditation program and training program so that it's not something they're running anymore. They are partnered with a new... Uh, corporation that's been formed who is going to handle all of that and their only contribution is probably going to be discussion guidance and then they're going to provide the judge promo foils that are going to be part of the program and so judges aren't really paying to be able to get paid poorly so much as they are potentially overpaying an accreditation company to get the license, quote unquote, that allows them to go get paid poorly from other people's events. It's important to differentiate. It's not all the same thing. It's not Wizards saying, you know, we employ all judges at all events. We're still running all events. Um, But now we don't want to control the judge training program. What they're really saying is, you know, Channel Fireball runs all the GPs. Local businesses run all of the LGS action. Um, We run some super high level events where we hire judges and it's much more legally beneficial for us to be way arm's length at this. Now, you can still make the argument that this is a weaselly way that Wizards avoids having to do the right thing, like make sure judges get paid well, um, if that's what you believe should happen. But Wizards take on that will be, you know, we're not running most of those events. Most of that is between LGSs and their employees, including judges, or GP organizers and their employees, i.e. Channel Fireball, um, and the variety of other things like Vintage Weekend and whatever that are run by private entities of a variety of shapes and sizes, depending on which continent you're talking about. So it's not crazy that Wizards doesn't want to be in the middle of all that because they're not, they're only one of several potential employers. It is, I think still awkward for the judges in the sense that because wizards is providing the judge foils and obviously has input on how many each judge is getting at each level based on the dues that are being collected the dues are largely being set by the private entity that's taking over the judge program wizards is controlling which foils and how often and how many and so 
if you look at the foils as a part of the judge's compensation, then they are they are still under the influence of wizards, but from a position where they can no longer successfully sue wizards. So there's that. I I just I get where you're coming from. It all makes me queasy. It makes me queasy. I think that if you talk about certification and the ability to be hired based on that certification in other places, you know, you have like various Microsoft, Oracle, um, you know, all those types of like major industrial software certifications. There is a wide swath of vendor of um, of of employers who are interested in those and employees with those certifications. Excuse me, skills. Um, a lot of them will pay for that certification. Like, hey, if you come work for me, I will, you know, and you and you kind of know how to do this, I will keep paying your certification dues for you. Uh, it, it's essentially a larger, more natural market. Uh, whereas this is so small and tight, it doesn't feel like the judges are getting a benefit out of it in the same way that somebody certified in um, an Oracle DBA is. Uh, it's like it feels like it's a it's a very um, artificial shell to try and create some distance, but we all know that it's not there. Uh, so, so let me give you, I think, which, I think a better example. Like, obviously, I work in tech, um, so I can fully understand that. You know, if you get hired at Amazon, Microsoft, Shopify, Google, etc., and you need some certification, most of that's going to be covered internally. Um, but I think those are, that's a very different situation. I think this is much closer to something like a soccer ref. You know, like a local sports referee needs to get accredited somewhere and pay potentially union dues, if it's a union, um, that they're being accredited by. And if it's just an association, they still need some form of accreditation. And then they have a variety of, like, for instance, in Toronto, there are four or five major sports and social clubs that run literally thousands of events per week. You know, ultimate frisbee, pickup hockey, flag football, whatever, all over the city on every sports field, like across a major metropolis, and they negotiate their pay with their their refs. But those refs are not accredited by them; they are accredited by an independent organization, which is again a, a for you know a pay a pay sometimes a, a not for profit and sometimes a for profit entity. And I think this is closer to that. So I think from a judge's perspective, the, the real question is, what have we gained and what have we lost? They've lost the potential collective bargaining power from alternatively having formed a union and having, were wizards to be running, you know, most GPs and stuff still, and had they not distanced themselves from that, and they were the primary employer for the judges at that level, they would have had a much easier time negotiating. Um, in this situation, the negotiation strength is very minimal. The best they can do is put pressure on the accreditation, the judgeacademy.com is, is the organization. Um, and by the way, it's probably worth mentioning who's running this thing. Um, it's going to be run by Tim Shields, who runs Cascade Games, an organization that has 20 or 25 years putting together GPs before CFB was running them and all sorts of major other events. And they are basically forming or have formed a new corporation that is going to manage the judge program with the thumbs up from wizards. So, uh, 
Well, I mean, you, you just hit the nail. One of the nails on the head right there is Wizards essentially moved to strip the ability to unionize from the judges, which is like it's just union busting, basically. Like, oh, remember that guy who tried to sue Wizards three years ago because he claimed that, you know, he wanted to claim they're all employees and blah, blah, blah. And it spooked Wizards so bad. They're like, uh, yeah, we're getting the hell out of the way of this. Not let's make lives better for our judges. Let's cover our asses so we can't get in trouble legally. So it really put the feel like it put the screws to the judges here because it just removed their ability to to effectively unionize against Wizards. And they also, Wizards gets to put themselves at arm's length and go, well, we're, we're setting this up and, you know, life is, you know, it's going to be better for the judges, blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay, well, really you're putting Channel Fireball in the position where now they, because the uh, judges are paying these yearly dues um, and already weren't getting great, they already weren't getting great compensation. Now they're paying all these yearly dues. Channel Fireball is going to step there, have to step their payment of the judges up in order to make it worth it. Uh which means that their overhead is going to increase, which means that cost to the player, it'll trickle down the cost of the player. So in effect, Wizards is essentially choosing to raise the cost of events independently by forcing all of the events for their game to have increased overhead costs. Like it's just such an insular circle here that they get to tweak all of these knobs and like impact the way things are run, but they get to do it at a legal arm's reach and it's at the at the pains of the judges i'm not entirely clear that that chain of events is going to unfold that way the the dues essentially cover the administrative and management fees of running the judge program and the in return they get these judge foils so we should take a look at what the program actually entails so level one judges pay a hundred dollars a year now and they're going to get uh, four judge foils. So judge foils tend to be something like 50 to 100 to $150 each. So they're probably up on the uh, fees. Uh, but uh, in the, in the uh, past, they didn't have fees. Ah, 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 Judge foils were 50 to $150. You and I heard from somebody on Twitter, which is unverified, but this is you know the data point I'm going to work with at the moment, that they get... Roughly a quarter of the judges have been getting those exemplar packs. Yes. Now we're looking at four times as many judge promos, roughly. Yep. If, if you assume that a quarter of all judges got exemplar packs before, basically, and if you are quadrupling the amount of any given judge promo on the market now, possibly more. So now judge foils that were 50 to 150 might be like 15 to 100. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a change. That is a dramatic change. And and it's still and it's still like every quarter it seems like so it's like at level one you're getting one of each card in each wave and there's four cards per wave eight total cards per membership year so actually it sounds like there's uh so they're getting eight cards <laughs> for the hundred dollars so it's basically twelve fifty a card and yes there will be now all the judges get them instead of just hand picked like exemplar judges the best of the best. Um, so as long as you pay your dues, you get your you get your cards, which some people were saying means just everybody's going to sign up to be a judge. But the reality is that like, OK, I thought about that for a second. Like I've taken the level one test in the past and I like the guys who run face to face games. So I'd be willing to like help out at a pre-release here and there. Um, 
But the reality is you can't just sign up as a judge and then get the like pay your dues and get the foils. You have to judge X number of events. And I'm sure those details will will become clear as we get closer to the turnover date, which I think is in October um, of this year. It's not just going to be like everybody in the pro trader forums gets to sign up as a judge. It's you if you were, say, a six, smart 16 year old who could judge and had all the time in the world you might want to consider going ahead and and getting certified for level one and actually doing a little judging here and there. And maybe you decide to do the bare minimum and you come out a little further ahead because every hour you actually spend judging is probably net negative to your wallet. (laughs) But if you do the the bare minimum, you might still do okay if these judge foils end up looking good. And we, we know what the first four are and they do look good. They're going to be in the same vein as what we've seen in the past. The ones announced so far for this first wave are Chalice of the Void, Monastery... Uh, mentor reflecting pool and yuriko the tiger's shadow yuriko is not a huge deal but chalice of the void monastery mentor and reflecting pool are all going to be a very big deal the chalice of the void is seb mckinnon art the one that's uh the art that's found on magic online so all of that's pretty exciting um definitely worth us considering that there will be more of the judge foils out there um under this program i i i for us, it's fine. Like we're we're going to pay the appropriate price. So the 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 effect on Magic Finance, I think, is just that the the foils will be more plentiful and will take longer to turn the corner. So you know, my pick this week of Judge Foil Ristic Study is clearly going to be better than say Judge Foil Yuriko the Tiger's Shadow. Um, from the judge's perspective, I think they are worse off because they are further from having any kind of collective action position. Um, they're not in, I, I'm dubious as to whether judgeacademy.com is going to negotiate on their behalf for pay. My guess is no. They're all totally on their own as independent contractors. Mm-hmm. And that one of the couple of the comments I saw that did resonate with me were that the fees are too high. That from an MTG finance perspective, twelve fifty for each of these foils is obviously fine. Um, Maybe, but from but from a, I, I think it's probably fine. I mean, the no matter how many they print of them, the Seb McKinnon Chalice of the Voids are going to be hundred dollars plus for sure. Um, the but from a comparison to say what you know a soccer ref play, pays um, in a similar situation. They might be paying about double. So you can argue that their fees should probably be at level one, 50 bucks a year. And the extra 50 is covering eight cards at $4 a piece, which is still, to my mind, not that bad. And when I look at the situation on the whole, I'm still just thinking to myself, I mean, you have to love judging because (laughs) at no point has judging been lucrative. There's no signal it will ever be lucrative. So this is a labor of love. Like you, you have to do it because you love it. And if you don't love it, you should really just consider looking at it like doing coming at magic from a different angle. Because Wait, which... th- there's no signal here that says judging is about to get be a really sweet way to pay the bills. Which is I, this whole thing reeks of wizards having gotten really spooked when that guy tried to sue them a couple years ago, and they. I think the lawsuit's actually ongoing. I don't even think it's done. Oh, I thought that got uh, booted. I thought he was denied the right to like file the suit or something like that. 
I'd have to double and, check. I'll, I'll do that before next week and get get it, clear on where they actually stand on it. But it, let's put it, it this way: that it, that suit is much less likely to succeed now that oh, all yeah. of these changes have. Gone there's on. there's no way. There's no way. But it, it it reeks of wizards having gotten spooked by that experience, whether it's ongoing or not, and going to their lawyers and saying, "How do we set this up so we don't get hosed by collective bargaining?" And this is the template that they put together, and it was. I do not believe for a second that this was done in good faith to make the lives of judges better, which feels even worse because these are the people that let your damn events run. Like you cannot run an event without these guys and and women who are putting the time and effort in to making sure that this all runs smoothly. And they're like, there, it, it doesn't seem like it would be that hard to make judging lucrative and then put people in the position where it's like, wow, I I really want to judge. Like, oh, man, we have to fight to get spots at the fire, at the GPs because every time you get to judge a GP, it's so good for you. Like, that is where you'd rather this be because you'd, you'd rather people feel like they weren't getting to judge enough rather than going, wow, I spent my entire weekend doing this and I made less money than if I had worked one eight-hour shift at McDonald's, right? But, like, but, it, all, it, but, it, but yeah. it all comes down to competitive pressure. Like, if the judges are unhappy, they should stop judging. If they keep judging, then the, the people that are taking them, that are absorbing the profit that could be redirected to either their pay or to prize pools for players or a mixture of both are going to continue doing that. So at the GP level, we're talking about Channel Fireball. And Channel Fireball formed CFB events to run GPs and make a bunch of money. And if you want some of that money, you have to apply pressure. If you just keep showing up to judge and whining on social media, that's not going to get you there. Well, I mean, you're right. Like, you know, take a stand. But unfortunately, we are in a situation where nerds are famous for providing free labor like all over the place. Like they feel like they get to be part of the community. It feels good. Blah, blah, blah. Like they've been doing it in the digital space for years and years and years. I mean, what do you think mods are? Uh, sure. And this is essentially feels like the same thing. Like you're always going to have a kind of 16 to 24, a line of 16 to 24 year olds who will work for virtually nothing or literal nothing. Uh, if they get to judge magic events and feel like they're cool and part of and part of it and on the end and what have you, and it's just like I don't know, it's just like you, you can look at the technical component, the, the the technical execution of this, and see how Wizards was trying really to make it better for them and worse for judges. And you can also see, I feel like in the spirit of it, in the spirit of this movement, it does not feel like Wizards is looking out for the judges' best interests. It feels oh, like they are trying to to essentially. St- do nothing to help them and do everything to protect wizards, which is just really disappointing. Yeah. I don't think they're trying to screw judges. I think they're trying to abandon judges. They just don't want to, they don't want anything to do with program. Yeah. Um, They're not trying to throw them out. They're not trying to like get rid of judging. They're just, they have no interest in making it better for them, which is what bugs me. And the reason they're willing to take that risk is because they don't think the risk exists. They they don't think that this will result in people, LGS is not being able to staff their events. They believe that there are enough minimum wage oriented people willing to judge that judges will still be present in most of the places that they need to be present, mm-hmm. that there will be enough, enough judges for GPs and there will be enough judges for local events. And that's all they care about. 
and, yeah. and wizards will source from that community for their international and and uh, high end events, and they might get paid a little better there. And that's that. That's the and extent it, to which they want to be involved. And if it's it's like with anything else, whenever we talk about any issue related to magic, if it hits wizards in the pocketbook, then yeah, things will change. Like if 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 six months out. 60% of judges had quit and Channel Fireball couldn't staff GPs appropriately and they had to limit the size of their GPs because they couldn't find enough judges or they had to like have level ones where they should have had level twos. Then you would see Wizards intervene again and try to sweeten the pot. But outside of that scenario, what we've seen, especially in the last two years on multiple fronts, is Wizards cutting costs where they think they can get away with it. That is the dominant theme. Yeah. Tra- transitioning us to the last topic of the week, the future of the Pro Tour. We didn't have any specific official announcements about what's happening next year, but the absence of information speaks volumes. And there was a couple of big things that unfolded. We had a whole bunch of pros making commentary over the weekend during the Mythic Championship about leaving teams. So we had Jim Davis resigning from the team that he built up that was mostly SEG-focused. Um, we had Mike Sigrist and I think P. Uh, Paulo Vitor Dama de Rosa, who is one of the you know most you know top 10 Magic players of all time, um, both leaving Team Channel Fireball, one of the most important teams in Magic. That, um, that I just want to point out that one I'm not 100% on because PV said he still wanted to write magic content and do stuff so i am not clear that that's him withdrawing from the pro tour but but no no, no. he said he, he just said he was leaving channel fireball not the pro tour right which so, so i'm just kind of like but but the signal that i was getting out of that was channel fireballs downsizing the size of their team because they don't think they don't want to be in a position where they have to support players if they don't believe that the mythic championship series is going to exist in a relevant form next year i suspect where we are headed for 2020 is a series of promotional tournaments that look a lot more like the Invitationals than the Pro Tour. I suspect that what what Wizards got out of the data from this year is that they can just throw a bunch of known Magic personalities in a room and get about as much out of it as they would have if they were running that plus the Pro Tour. And so I bet you next year, they are just going to run a streamlined version of like roughly half the total events they ran this year and they're going to lean on streamers to fill in the gaps. And Channel Fireball is probably not going to run any more event coverage than they are this year because it's not cost-effective for them to take that all on on their own, and they don't want to spend the money on it because it comes straight out of their bottom line. So I suspect that's where we're headed. And what that means is that the number, total, the you know, this movement that we thought we were witnessing 18 months ago where they announced that, you know, the M- the Magic, uh, the MPL, X number of people making X amount per year. I have a feeling that that whole situation is going to be short-lived indeed. It, it, this looks real bad. Uh, it's, it's not even that the changes are terrible. It's that we don't know what they are. Nobody knows if they're qualified for the next Pro Tour. They don't know who to ask. They don't know how to find out. It's really a, a terrible mess. I do find it odd that Channel Fireball... In downsizing their pro tour, it would kick off PV, 
<laughs> like I really, I, I, I'm reserving judgment on what happened there. I'm curious about that. Cause like, why you're getting rid of the hall of famer? Really? You've got like three, keep them. Uh, but right, in any it's, case, it's also, it's also possible there was a personality conflict there, but for Sigrist and PVV, uh, uh, Paul to announce that on the same weekend was a little strange. It's hard to believe that they both had issues. So, I mean, well, we may we may ever, may never know the full details, but the bottom line the bottom line is this: I can easily see a situation where, say, the MPL survives. So you have like sixty four people that are on the seventy five thousand dollar a year plan, and they keep playing amongst themselves and playing streamers at events. And the only way to get into that mix is qualifying through arena. They they could just basically say GPs are not your route to the to professional magic anymore arena is your sole route to professional magic you have to qualify through arena to get onto this and you have to win some major arena tournament to get onto the mp to get invited to the mpl yeah. and you probably also have to have a major social media presence and be a consistent streamer it i mean this this is i i guess i don't see anything different in material here than what we've kind of talked about and seen before with the future of the Pro Tour, and just, it well, looks miserable. Like it just... well, for instance, well, for instance, Barcelona had 455 players playing. What I'm saying is that next year, you might not have any events over 100. Yeah, right, right. I guess what I'm saying is, the information that we've all, we've seen to date, like, as of Barcelona, it doesn't feel like it's much different than what we had prior. It's just more so in how they seem to be stripping the Pro Tour back. The logical conclusion of this and I agree with you, is that you end up with events that are 100 people, you know? Like, it's no, it's the Pro Tour as we know it is gone. Um, so I don't, I you know, there's a, a lot of variations in how all of this can be, can come to be. Um, and one of them being the same, you know, 70 Magic players playing over and over and over again. And occasionally you get somebody who cracks in by winning via arena or whatever. Uh, maybe that's what it looks like um, or, or some other permutation on that equation. It's going to be it's disappointing for sure. Um, and I think that there are going to be a lot of hidden costs that Wizards may not be anticipating to having the entire competitive structure fall out of your game. And it sounds like a lot of old hands are also pretty disappointed about it. I hope that it's not true, but it does seem to be the direction they're taking, and they're taking it pretty aggressively. I, I somehow, I some, I wonder. I mean, there's so many different ways you could you could approach this, but it seems to me like GP winners having no route to professional magic doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, even if you want to make it primarily about arena, you could say that it's a combination of your arena points plus your GP finishes, like your GP top eights. To qualify, to be put into contention, for instance, not officially qualify like you used to be able to, but just to get on a list. And then Wizards is going to handpick the people that they think are best for the brand, which is, would still be a frustrating position to be in, but at least makes going to GPs potentially worthwhile. Because it seems very, if they end up doing what I think they're going to do, and it's going to be mostly Arena that gets you into position as a professional Magic player, then GPs are just kind of these one-off events where if you spike it, you make some money. But there's no coverage and no reason to care. And and I start to question their brand building value, which I think they actually they had they really did have. I think consistent coverage made people care about competitive magic. I don't believe that competitive magic is the thing that sells the most magic cards. 
And I think that that is part of where Wizards is headed is that they're full, fully embracing um, the casual magic scene, the commander magic scene, the, you know, the big whales on the finance and collector side is all part of this. They think they can do, they can achieve sales goals without spending the whatever, whatever number of millions of dollars the pro tour costs them. So they're going to try it. And if it doesn't, if they feel like it's hurting the brand, then maybe they'll revisit. That's, that's what I think is going to happen. I think that the, the culture that the pro tour adds, well, either EV neutral or EV negative for wizards is on its surface is extremely important for all of the rest of the game. Um, You know, the existence of the pro tour makes going to GPs a little more exciting because you know that if you get lucky and spike the GP, you get to go play on the pro tour, which is kind of like the goal that people live for, or, you know, they play for. But if you take away that goal, well, now going to GPs is a little less fun because if uh, the only thing there is a cash purse and it really doesn't get you to the pro tour. Now uh, the equation is a lot worse because going to the pro tour didn't was something that you could want, but couldn't assign a, a dollar value to, but just winning a prize pool you do have a dollar value on and you know that like now you can go okay well it is not worth it all this time effort whatever for me to go and try and win a ten thousand dollar first place it's just not worth it so it makes gps less interesting to travel to and if you're not bothering to go to gps do they even have pptqs anymore i don't even know if you if you get rid of the you know if there aren't really as much in the way pptqs and rptqs now it's like well is it worth going to GPs because I don't play those and those aren't worth going to because it's not really practice for a GP? And then you dial back even further and you go, well, I go to FNM because I'd like to stay up on the game. I like to kind of stay competitive. It's a good, you know, like weekly kind of go exercise type of deal. See how decks are doing, get some, some reps in. Um, and it, it's a good way to kind of stay connected. But when that upper you know, when it's not worth going to the GPs anymore, cause it's not worth going to pro tours. Now, is it worth going to FNM? You know, why would I go to FNM if it's not leading anywhere? And maybe I still go because I want to go play modern, but it starts to get to the point like, well, why am I maintaining a collection if all I'm doing is playing FNMs? I can I can swallow pain for Renin sixes if I'm going to go play them at FNM every week and then know that I might take them to a PPTQ or one GP a season or something like that. But if none of that upper level exists, now why am I buying a $150 card for FNM? I could play junk. So, and so just go that, and have fun. And like the whole structure. But once I stop going to FNM, remember, for a lot of people, it's not the magic. It's the gathering. So now if I start to see a reason to stop going to FNM and I quit going, my friends will stop going. And that's exactly what happened to my social circle. I had like 15 peers and we would all go to FNM pretty regularly. Basically, one person cracked and the entire thing fell apart because now I'm not going to FNM. So I bug my friend to hang out with me on Friday night and do something else. And that cascades and you lose that entire group of people. Now, we were also at an age roughly where we might have been turning away from it, but we're still just getting together on Friday nights and playing board games and drinking. It's not like we're doing like hanging out with our kids instead, right? Like, it's, it's just – it feels like you have this entire support column that you didn't notice it was doing that much for you. So you decided to cut it out and it turned out that that was required for all of these other pillars to really work. Yeah. I mean I, I think what they're banking on is that that is not how the dominoes are going to tumble. I think that they believe that what what they're actually doing is disincentivizing 
the best players in the room. But they're banking on that being the smallest sliver. So let's th- think about it in terms of like face-to-face games Toronto. They might have three or 400 people that show up on a rotating basis in and out of their modern tournaments. They're almost always packed, even in their new place with double the floor space. When I walked, waltzed in there to drop, drop off a bunch of bulk on Saturday, they were humming. Like 60, 70 people showed up for their Saturday modern tournament or whatever. Now, of those people... The guys that are always at the top table, almost no matter when I walk in the room, could be a Daniel Fournier, a Chris Ha, whoever. Um, you know, people that are up on their, like, season's leaderboard at any given time might be the top 10% of the people in the room. Some of them have been operating on dreams of professional magic. You know, Daniel Fournier certainly would, wouldn't fall into that category. But most of the people are just there to, like, just want to play some magic. Like, they're going to show up to a Magic Fest if it rolls into town, because it only rolls in, like, once a year, if they're lucky. You know, Toronto gets one a year. Maybe if you're in Cincinnati, you get one every two or three years, whatever. Um, you're going to go, because just it's a Magic event, and it's a big th- big deal, so you'll go check it out. You might not play in the main event anymore, and I think that's one of the impacts that we saw, you know, when people were talking about the low turnout at GP Denver. Um, the counter argument was, yeah, but a lot of people played side events. So there's not a ton of motivation to play in the main event anymore, but that doesn't mean you don't need your red and sixes. It just means you're going to play a bunch of, you're going to play some commander at a side event. Then you're going to do a 16 man pod person pod modern event. And you're going to go, you know, buy some cards for your collection and fool around and maybe take a picture with a cosplayer, but you're not too worried about whether you're going to play the main GP anymore. And that's, I think what wizards is hoping that some of the competitive people lose the fire and maybe they get turned away from the game. But if anything, those people open the doors for the mediocre players, which is the majority of the players, to have a better chance of doing well in events because they're not up against as many spikes. So in theory, that could make for competitive formats more open, uh, see a lot more tier 2, tier 2.5 lists, like just fun decks coming to the table. You could take these competitive formats in different directions if you appeal to a different kind of person. Now, how will this all play out? Hard to say. There's a lot of variables. And, you know, we've discussed some, you know, potentialities. But first, we need to see the announcements for next year. And then I'm sure there will be plenty to discuss. (laughs) If we do see the announcements, like if there are announcements. There'll be something going on. There's no way they're dropping high level play. I just think they're going to scale it back again. And it's going to be even less than this year. I, I... You have a rosier outlook on this than I do. Um, I I don't think it's rosy. I just don't. I I don't think that they believe that it will hurt the brand and they have all the information. If they thought they needed the pro tour to advance the cause of magic, then there's no way they would get rid of it. It's not that expensive to run. Like they're saving millions of dollars with the changes they're making. But this is a half billion dollar a year brand. They can allocate 10 or 20 million in one direction or another if they need to, if it gets the job done. They just don't think that job needs doing. Or they believe that they can reallocate those funds in other directions and get more out of it, which is essentially what they did with the MPL. I think that they believe that Magic players can only pay attention to so many Magic personalities at once. And they figure if they support the top 100, they can cut out the bottom 400 and not worry about it. Clearly, they have a belief that they do not need to support competitive magic at this particular level. Um, and 
in response, they are pairing it back in some capacity. I all at the core of this is I don't trust their wisdom on this. I don't trust their belief that pruning the pro tour heavily won't have impacts beyond what they've decided is acceptable. Part, part of it depends on whether that was a top down decision from Hasbro in response to the Toys R Us uh, budget crunch. Toys R Us going bankrupt really hurt Hasbro, not so much Magic. And Magic is a shining star currently in the latest investment um, uh, package that was released by Hasbro. They've been highlighting Magic as kind of like a centerpiece brand for all of Hasbro now. And they were, the CEO was talking about how they want to grow, they want to double the Magic brand in the next five years. That's a really weird set of comments. You know, Magic having its best year ever and being increasingly embraced by the mothership as one of the most important things they own and simultaneously, you know, reducing the uh, spend on competitive play feels like you're tugging in two directions. So you have to wonder how much of this is echoes from a, you know, the Toys R Us thing and related budget problems. And, you know, did Wizards employees believe this was the right choice with the data they have at hand or were they fighting to try to keep it and they just haven't been able to win that argument? Time will tell. Let's let's see where we're at in a year. I'm sure next summer we will have a much better sense of where things are headed. Yeah, I, I mean, between the judges and what we see on the Pro Tours, uh, I... I I knew Wizards was going to take a, a heel turn towards more more publicly supporting casual magic and perhaps making EDH sort of the the face of the brand, but I, I still do not like where this is headed. It does seems like they are chopping off their own legs here. But again, all we can do is wait and see, right? Well, I mean, as a capper, you know, what did we talk about last week when we we're talking about the product mix for Throne of Eldraine? We have the collector boosters that are focused on the, the whales. That's a high-end product again. One, we've seen one or more high-end products every couple of months all for all of the last 12 months. And the brawl decks that they introduced are aimed at a more casual segment of the LGS community. So pretty clear, you know, pulling money away from competitive magic Throwing it into new products for collectors and casuals tells the story in a nutshell. All right, that's a wet wrap for this week, folks. Where can people find you online, Travis? Oh, I am Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter, Wizard Bumpin, B U M P I N. Uh, I do this podcast. I write every Monday for the Watchtower series at MTG Price. We are uh, at just over two hours on a recording time, and uh, I would like to point out James told me this is going to be a tight 80 minutes tonight. <laughs> I'm just never right on this topic ever. Um, you guys can find me on Twitter at MDG Critic as well as via my weekly articles on MGGPrice.com. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MGGPrice.com Pro Trader service for just $7.99 a month or $79.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MGG finance minds in the business, group buys, super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. 
Uh, once again, Magic MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool stuff in stock, including the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use promo code FINANCE5, the number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast, which brings us to the... Oh, wait, you got to do our credit giveaway. Uh, that would be going to Demonic Tutor this week. Demonic Tutor gets our $25 gift certificate to Cool Stuff Inc. Go spend thousands of dollars with our lovely sponsors so they continue to support this podcast. Good, good magic card, except an EDH. Uh, that brings us to the end of episode 179. Uh, I had a good time chatting with you, and hopefully we can do it next week. Thank you, Travis. We'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. <laughs> Thank you.